Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are in the day of the turkey here, the age of the tu- season of the turkey, I guess you'd say, mm-hmm. here in the United States. Thanksgiving is upon us, and so it's all about this big, at times, delicious bird. Well, and, and uh, it's usually the turkey, but sometimes there's the turduncan. Yes. Duncan. This is what you do, right? Since you, you don't eat the meat anymore. Yeah, I stuff a chicken into a turkey no, into wait, a duck. That's right. No, I got confused with uh, <laughs> tofurkey. Tofurkey, which is different. I do not do the tofurkey. Oh, why? What's your what's your thoughts? Well, I just feel like there are many things that a vegetarian can make and bring, and they're completely acceptable and really wonderful tasting. And you don't have to go the tofurkey route unless you want to get the side eye from your guests. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Some people may feel differently about tofurkey. That's just my take. Well, certainly my whole thing is that um, Thanksgiving meal, great. There are lots of fabulous side items. I love, like, broccoli casserole. I love, um, oh, what are the little guys that you're supposed to not like as a kid? Um uh, Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. Yeah, Brussels sprouts are delicious. Uh, um, sweet potatoes, all of it. You know, all the side dishes are great. And then at the center, you have this big cooked turkey that, even if it's cooked well, even if it's not too dry, even if it's seasoned properly, it's still like the least interesting thing for me on the table. Well, but it's a tradition, so everyone right. has to, to eat it. It's the star of the show, even though the supporting cast is really just bringing it a lot more. Yeah. Than, than actual turkey. Um, I will not malign turkey. Because I could go on for, for a while as to say, like, we spend so many hours trying to make this edible. But um, <laughs> I think that it would be better if we spent some time talking more about uh, this creature yes. and how it's kind of amazing and um, how we've gamed it, how we have uh, manipulated its DNA. And, and it's become part of our culture here in yeah. the United States. I mean. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure every every podcast that's out this month is it's, it's probably doing like a turkey episode, and they're hitting some of the usual things. But it's worth noting that, I mean, the turkey, that was the bird that Benjamin Franklin said, forget the eagle, the eagle's kind of a jerk. Let's go with the turkey, because the turkey is silly. The turkey is, I believe his words were, um, a, yeah, a little vain, a little silly, a bird of courage that would not hesitate to attack a grenader of the British guards who should presume to invade his farm yard with a red coat on. So he... And he liked the he turkey. He liked the turkey. He thought the turkey was a more noble creature. And now, then, but though, when he is thinking, or when he was talking about that turkey, it was a wild turkey, which is very yes, different very from different. what we think of today. Yes. And we'll get into some of the, the crossover there between wild and domestic turkeys uh, as we uh, go forward. Another big American thing with turkey is the pardoning of the turkey. That's right. The president pardons the turkey so that the turkey may live another year. Which... I know it's like people love it, I guess, but I always find it just kind of distasteful because it's like the president's pardoning pardoning one bird. All the other birds are not getting pardoned. And then there's a lot to be said, too, about the use of capital punishment in the United States, and it's it's a little tacky for me. Well, for me, it's a little out of time. It it feels very vaudevillian, like, why are you turkey? Don't worry about it. This year? Yeah, we have no other pressing issues at the moment, so we're going to pardon a bird. Yeah. Yeah. But I guess it's a nice act. Uh, it's an altruistic act, even though there's another turkey that will take its place at the presidential dinner. Um, 
But it is an interesting thing, and it all points back to this idea that it's the turkey is so steeped in tradition. But when you think about it, the first Thanksgiving uh, that we hear about, that we read about in textbooks, was not really uh, as traditional as we think. In other words, historians have tried to piece it together, have tried to figure it out the, the various resources available uh, to the pilgrims, to the these Puritans, uh, English Puritans that were uh, relocated here in the United States, and they have figured out that it is probably not the turkey that was on the table. In fact, it may have not have uh, shown up at all because more likely the feast would have looked like something like shellfish, venison. Those would be the sources of protein that would have shown up on the table. And so, you know, you kind of think about that in, in this other context. So like oysters and deer jerky would be a more... Yes, okay. as well as corn, right? Because yeah. the the Puritans had the benefit of being instructed by American Indians on how to cultivate food. Because remember, they arrived here, uh, rough conditions, drought, etc. They weren't having a lot of luck. So this first Thanksgiving really was a feast of harvest time to celebrate the bounty that um, they were actually instructed how to grow. And, of course, this sort of celebration, this harvest time celebration, is not anything that is unique to the United States. And we've seen this in all different cultures across time, celebrating the sort of bounty that comes in. Yeah, the harvest rolls in. We're in an agricultural scenario. Or even uh, you see this even in groups that are not uh, agriculturally driven. But suddenly there's there's a surplus of food, and what do you do? You have yourself a feast. Tonight we shall truly eat. Which is really beautiful because, yeah. I mean, it really is about fellowship and getting together and, and, and celebrating. And taking at least one moment. I mean, certainly in cases where you can actually store the food and, and provide for the next day and the day after that and the day after that, yeah, you're, gonna, you're not going to want to eat it all. But there's enough to at least engage in a feast for one day. And then in other situations, you might not be able to preserve the food, so you might as well. Just go nuts. So eventually, uh, the turkey, though, takes its place on the table. Yes. And um, what I wanted to mention is th- that there's another myth about turkeys and Thanksgiving that we should probably put to bed. Most people probably know this, but L-tryptophan, yes. this is an amino acid, which is a natural sedative, is found in turkey. So it was thought that because tryptophan helps the body produce niacin, which in turn helps the body produce serotonin, a chemical that acts as a calming agent in the brain, it was thought that if you ate a lot of turkey, that this would account for how tired, um, how sleepy, and just like this food coma feel come over you, that this was attributed to eating turkey. Yeah. I mean, ignoring, of course, the fact that after Thanksgiving meal, you've um, you've probably consumed uh, 3,000 calories, 229 grams of fat. Uh, you've probably, you, you may or may not have had some wine in there. You've had a very rich meal. So, of course, your body's going to shut down. <laughs> You're going to collapse right. on a couch somewhere. But, uh, but yeah, this myth ends up, it's still, you still see it circulated around and sort of laughed about over, uh, over the dinner table in, in no small thanks to Seinfeld because they had a whole episode, of course, where, uh, people were pulling out boxes of wine and turkey to essentially roofie one another. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, again, there are different things at play here. You would have to eat a huge amount of turkey. If you think you eat a lot of turkey on Thanksgiving, you would yeah. have to probably quadruple that. Yeah, eliminate all the side dishes and just stack up the cold cuts. On an empty stomach. On an empty stomach. Because that's the other thing. Uh, L-tryptophan needs to work on an empty stomach to really uh, get the effects that we are that, that are attributed to a turkey feast. And still, the sleepiness that will occur has a lot to do with the daunting job ahead for your gastrointestinal tract Mm -hmm. because it's got to break all that down. So 
just wanted to mention that. Put that turkey to bed. I also wouldn't be surprised if there's a certain amount of placebo effect here, uh, because obviously people eat turkey at other times. Uh, you can go and get you know cur- turkey cold cuts at the deli, and you put it on a sandwich. And I remember in the past when I would like take a a, um, a cold cut sandwich with turkey on it to work. I would I would be thinking in my mind it's like oh, I'm going to be sleepy after this because it's loaded with uh, L-tryptophan. But um, but of course that's not the case unless I really went into it with that mentality. I guess I could conceivably allow myself to get a little sleepy afterwards. Well, I would say too that it's a great excuse to go take a nap and escape yeah. family. Yeah, it's like uh, oh, I family's know great. It's great, but when you stuff each other into the same house, especially when you're adults, right? You know, for a 24-hour period, it's you, you need the break. Yeah, it's like there's nothing for me to do now except lay down and watch football for a couple of hours. Sorry. Yeah, oh, that turkey. Oh, i got to go take a nap. By the way, the, the turkey that I have on my sandwich, I haven't picked this up in years, but I was really partial to the boar's head Cajun turkey, mm-hmm. which uh, my wife hated because she thought it smelled really awful um, and, and would joke. I think she was joking that I needed to keep it outside, like in a cold box. Anyway, this just doesn't seem right. But but it, go, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about the turkey turkey meat itself being not all that exciting, mm-hmm. and it needs like some Cajun spice in there to really, you know, make it good. It needs to be. Uh, you actually sent me some recipes, and I said that that's exactly what needs to happen. It needs to be marinated in the hell pit fires, yeah, and then exhumed eight hours later. Well, like t- I always think, tandoori turkey that would be great. I would far rather do a tand- tandoori turkey, but you can't because you have all this. Um, you, a, you have family members that are going to be like, what's a tandoori? Oh, my goodness, this is hot. I can't possibly eat this. And then also you start thinking about it where it's like, well, if I had complete control over my Thanksgiving meal, I, why stop there with the Indian food? Why not just ignore the turkey entirely and just have a lot of uh, delicious paneer and stuff? I know, right? Because, yeah. I mean, that in and of itself is a meal. All right, so the turkey. The humble turkey. The humble turkey as an organism. It is worth noting that even if uh, the turkey wasn't present at the Thanksgiving meal, the initial Thanksgiving meal, if the pilgrims weren't, were actually just eating oysters and deer jerky, the turkey itself is uh, is an American original, <laughs> which makes it sound like it's running for office. But no, it goes back, of course, to prehistoric times. And then the domestication of the turkey uh, goes back pretty far as well. So imagine a pre-Columbus America. All right, You have few domesticated animals in general. Just, just human-wise, there are few domesticated animals. All right. Most big animals can be tamed. You can treat them to not fear humans. But uh, to actually domesticate something, it's beyond that. You need an animal that doesn't fear humans, and you also need an animal that's going to breed a lot and allow you to select for certain traits. Mm-hmm. You want a bigger animal so you can eat it. You want a tamer and tamer animal so that it doesn't maul you or gore you or what have you. Uh, but few animals are, are actually capable of being domesticated. Humans have only ever domesticated 25 mammals and also roughly a dozen birds, and possibly a single lizard, which I'll touch on in a second. And then you also have arguably some insects, like the honeybee, the silkworm, etc. All right, so just six of these uh, these animals existed in pre-Columbian America, and they were mostly minor creatures. You had dogs that were eaten in Central and South America, dogs that were used as labor, pulling sleds and whatnot in the far north, delicious guinea pigs in the Andes, along with llamas and alpacas to haul stuff around, mm-hmm. um, South America's Muscovy duck, and some say, to get back to the, the lizard, some say that the iguana uh, was also domesticated because it was it 
farmed in Mexico and Central America. But then, of course, this also leads us to the turkey, which was apparently domesticated in uh, in Mexico as far back as 300 B.C. to uh, 100 A.D., according to a 2012 University of Florida study where they actually were finding evidence of this in Mayan ruins. Mm-hmm. And then in the 16th century, right, uh, it was traded, or actually it was transported to Europe, and you know, there's a long tradition there of domestication and turkeys and eating them. Which brings up another really interesting thing about the turkeys. Why do we call them a turkey, right? Why why is this ancient bird that came from North America, why do we why is it seemingly named after uh, a country on another continent? Why is it, it has nothing to do with Turkey, right? Turns out there are two theories about this. Robert Krolwich, one of mm-hmm. the hosts of Radio, Radio Labs, he he did a piece uh, you can find it on NPR. I'll link to it in the blog post accompanying this episode. But he examined this question. And he found there are basically two theories about this, right? So one of the theories is that in the 1500s, when the uh, bird first arrived in Great Britain, it was shipped by merchants in the in the east, mostly from Constantinople. And they had, of course, brought the bird over from America. But since it, it essentially came from Turkey, the British referred to it as a, quote, turkey cock. That's C-O-Q. Uh, and that means chicken, mm-hmm. you know, a turkey chicken, in other words. Uh, but but the thing is that the British just referred to anything from the East as uh, as Turkish. So Turkish rugs, Turkish flour, Turkish bags, mm-hmm. um, Turkish baths, you name it. It's just sort of a generic catch-all uh, for something that was quote-unquote oriental. And then there's another theory, uh, theory number two uh, that Krolwich lays out, is that long before Christopher Columbus went to America, Europeans already had a wild fowl that they liked to eat. It was from uh, Guyana in uh, Western Africa, and it was a guinea fowl imported to Europe, again, by Turkish merchants. Mm-hmm. So it, they ate this in London. They loved it. So it got the nickname turkey cock because it came from Constantinople. And then when people were introduced to similar birds, then, well, what do you call it? I guess it's a turkey cock. It's worth pointing out that it, it wasn't called a turkey in other parts of Europe. In Russia, it was called injushka, which means bird of India. In Poland, it was injikset. Uh, again, I'm butchering that because it's like I-N-Y-C-Z-K-A, but that again means bird from India. Um, so it's it's really fascinating when you when you look at that. It all comes to not where the bird came from, but where it came through. What was the initial port of call in this new land? You know, I'm going to go with number two. Yeah, you like yeah. number two? Yeah, uh-huh. just because I feel like if you if you look at the United States and you look at all the city names, that so many of them that they they actually took from Britain mm-hmm. and from the cities in Britain, and then they just you know lapped it. You know, they said, oh, okay, you're going to be, you know, New York, the New York, so on and so forth. Um, so I feel like they probably did the same thing. They looked yeah. in the woods and they were like, oh, look, it looks like a turkey. I could be wrong. But uh, as long as we are talking about turkeys of our past, which are still somewhat of our present, wild turkeys is what we need to talk about. Yes, wild turkeys. So, yeah, there's a definite difference between domestic turkeys and wild turkeys. Just on a very physical level, first of all, domestic turkeys cannot fly, can't even run very fast. They're easy pickings for a predator because they generally they don't have to deal with predators. They're domesticated animals. No, you can comment them with a hatchet. Yeah, yeah. A hammer. Easy work. Or just some strong words to take them out. <laughs> uh, their neck skin or wattles are heavier than wild tur- turkeys. The um, snoods, which are the finger-like appendages that hang, you know, when you make a turkey, fake turkey out of a glove or something, mm-hmm. this, those are snoods um, that hang over the bill. Uh, they're longer on domestic turkeys, and uh, the breasts are much larger and broader because uh, we've bred these things to eat. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also possess a temperament uh, that's more suited to confinement. Okay, they're not 
freaking out every time they see a human. They're a little more comfortable around humans. But then you have the wild turkeys. These things are sleek. They're alert. They're built for speed and survival. These are not, They're not living in a pen somewhere. They're living out and about. They're having to deal with predation. They are surprisingly tall when you encounter mm-hmm. them because my mom's house, uh, I'll occasionally see them out there. And you, I mean, you see them also in the Atlanta area. I, mm-hmm. I, I know people. Do you get turkeys in your yard? You live in a turkey zone. Uh, I live in a, um, a poultry zone, I guess you yeah. could say. A lot of people have chickens in their backyards. But I've n- I know I've yeah. never seen one in my I have heard reports of them hanging out near the railroads, probably with bindle sticks. I was about to say. Yeah. But um, their senses are sharpened. You know, They're, they're not going to just sit there and stare at the sky. Mm-hmm. They're actually dealing with, the, with dangers around them. And this makes them one of the harder animals to actually actively hunt. Because they're very afraid of humans. Well, and because they can fly, they can roost up in the tree, and they can get away from people. Yeah, unlike the domestic, they can actually use those wings for something. In terms of how they uh, appear, I I think of them as like the the traditional image of a Thanksgiving turkey, right? right? Because when you look back, again, textbooks from when you were little, it was this turkey, at least for me, that was presented as the Thanksgiving turkey, as this big, uh, just gloriously feathered animal that yes. was usually black and brown. And just and, fat as all get out. Like just an yes. enormously fleshed creature. Yeah. And, it um, looks like a Buddha with feathers. <laughs> a feathered Buddha. Not the, not the, the, the thin Buddha, but like the, the Presan Kaji Buddhist monk that, is, that has gained all this weight to keep women from distracting him. Well, that's a whole other story. Yeah, that is. And maybe that's what they, these turkeys were trying to do. You never know. But because their display is so amazing, uh, it probably won't strike anybody as this being odd. There are 20,000 feathers at play here with wild turkey. Wow. And if you look at uh, the domesticated t- turkey, you're looking at about 3,500 feathers. So this really is a glorious display of feathers. And some of those feathers can have different colors. Um, it, they're just so cool looking to me. And yeah. to me, they're also a little bit more formal looking. And a little scary because they kind of look like the Skeksis from the Dark Crystal. I mean, I guess the Skeksis <laughs> from the Dark Crystal kind of look like turkeys since uh, turkeys were there first. But, you know, they're kind of, they're, especially when you're close up, they're far bigger than you expect. Uh, also worth noting, male uh, domestic turkeys, they are, they're going to gobble a lot more. They're in a, they're in a safe yeah. environment, so they're just going to talk their heads off as much as they want. Yeah, females but, just click. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, but male wild turkeys, not so much because they again they're in a situation where they have to deal with predation, they have to deal with actual dangers, and surprise surprise if they stand around talking all day, something's going to know where they are and shoot them or eat them uh, or both. Yeah, they have plenty of natural predators like skunks, foxes, and snakes, but humans uh, are the number one killer of wild turkeys. So here is one really cool thing about these turkeys, is that they have a kinship, a sort of pact at play, and it has to do with their mating rituals. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we will talk about the wingmen of the turkey mating world. Okay, we're back. And we're talking about mating in the turkey world. So we've talked about cuttlefish before, Mm -hmm. which... A bit of a departure, but as you'll remember, there's this whole scenario with the cuttlefish. And again, this is a cephalopod, squid-like creatures that change their colors are fabulous, and they range from cute to kind of uh, Cthulhu-esque mm-hmm. looking, uh, kind of look like bearded men with, with tentacles. But you encounter the scenario in their mating where you'll have the big, bull, beefy, 
uh, muscle dude on the beach type of cuttlefish. And then you'll have the slender, maybe a little effeminate, uh, if you will, because that comes into play here, you know, a slender, weaker cuttlefish. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes time to mating, the, the big male cuttlefish is out there, and he's like, ah, oh, I'm mating with this one and this one. Everyone else hands off or I will fight you. But the, and he has a zebra pattern. Yes, yes. Which kind of reminds me of wrestling pants, but go on. Yes, yeah, wrestling zebra pants. Um, gosh, there's one guy in Japan who wore those. can't remember it. His name, uh, Ogawa, zebra pants. Mm-hmm. But he was a little guy, so it doesn't really But this is a word. big guy we're talking about. This is about. a big guy in zebra pants. So, But the, the little guys, they realize if I'm going to have a chance at mating and passing on my genes in this evolutionary game, I need to be sneaky. I need to sneak in there, pretend to be a female, and then the big bull, beefy, um, you know, muscular beach dude, uh, cuttlefish, he'll be like, oh, another lady, line up. Uh, I'll get to you next. And while he's uh, busy defending his turf, then this gender-bending cephalopod gets in there, mates with the female, and passes on his genes. So you end up with cuttlefish. You have a mixture of lineages here. You have mm-hmm. you have cuttlefish that are born that have those beefy, beat-people-up mentality and also the sneaky and careful and deceptive nature. Well, you have the dominant and the non-dominant. Right. Trying to figure out ways in which they can mate best. Yeah. Whereas with these wild turkeys, you have a very interesting dynamic going on, and uh, it is actually related to kin. So let's say you have two brothers, one wearing wrestling pants, one not. Right. Okay. Uh, so we're talking the dominant and the non-dominant, and they display something called kin selection. Now, okay, both of them you have to, to remember have they, they uh, share a great deal of DNA. Right. They're, they're bros. They're kin. Right. So the non-dominant takes the position that if his brother in his wrestling pants can successfully mate, well, then in a sense, his own genes are being propagated, are yeah, being passed his, on. His victory is mine. Right. And, uh, and I should really, if anything, live vicariously through his conquests. And help him out, yeah. hence the wingman. Yeah, right? and, and not get in there and try and score for myself. Because that was one of the things that the 2005 UC Berkeley study from the Museum of Vertebrate Zoology, they looked into this because that was kind of the question. Are these wingmen turkey? Are they really there supporting their bro? Or are they going into business for themselves on the side? Because it, it was really hard to tell yeah. what's going on in the bush. It's one thing to sort of form these theories, but who knows what's happening uh, in the underbrush. So what they did is, um, and this is explained by Alan Krakauer, he is the lead author on this study, they captured, tagged, and obtained blood samples from male and female turkeys and then captured flightless, young, scavenged, broken eggshells from abandoned nests or lifted eggs from unattended nests to obtain the DNA of offspring. So this is how they could confirm what was happening. Um, But what I think is really interesting is that Krakauer said, you know, this this is something we thought was going on in the wild, but we really needed to prove that there is this, this kinship selection at play. And so he explains this, the scenario and he says it's really interesting because while the dominant male was strutting, the subordinate male might continue to display, as he says, like a backup singer or even <laughs> chase away the other males that got too close. Oh wow. So provide a little muscle if someone else comes up to the bar to interfere with the date. But mm-hmm. also don't be afraid to do a little dance in there just to, to excite her a bit. Now, you yeah. had you had talked about turkeys as being called turkey coke, C-O-Q. Yeah. So is this the turkey coke block, cock block? Yes. Okay. Yes. I just had, I'm sorry. I, it was poorly executed. No. no, no. The, the joke needed to be the, told. The joke needed to be told, yes. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, uh, Krakauer, um, 
sums it up in this uh, wonderful quote. He says, basically, since subordinate males and dominant males share, share some portion of their DNA, the subordinate males benefit indirectly by helping their relatives breed. A subordinate partner gains more by giving help than it would by going off on its own and trying to breed by itself. So it's really a remarkable amount of, uh, of cooperation mm-hmm. going on there, and uh, where, where they're actually like, all right, this is our best, this is our brightest, we're going to do everything we can to make sure he gets out there and gets it done. There we go. Yeah. Another example of how humans and animals are alike. All right, so we've talked about wild turkeys. We've talked about these wingmen. Let's talk about domesticated turkeys, the star of the show, the star of the plate. The average American eats 17.5 pounds of turkey each year. In one setting, or is this? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's the that's how large the turkey is. Okay. Um, turkey consumption by Americans has increased 116 percent since the 1970s. Over 45 million turkeys are eaten each Thanksgiving, and well, if you look at that in pounds, that's a hundred, that's a 675 million pounds of turkey eaten at each Thanksgiving in the U.S. It can get really competitive trying to get a turkey, especially if you're trying to get an, like an organic bird. Mm-hmm. Um, like last year, we got one from uh, the little grocery in Oakhurst. They were going to get some turkeys in. And so we were like calling every day, if you order the turkeys, you know when the turkeys are going to come in because we're trying to get on that turkey list. So you can get a good, you know, organic bird that, you know, was pampered during its life or something. Uh, yeah, I saw that at Trader Joe's a couple of weeks ago. They had a pamphlet out about the turkeys that were coming in. Yeah. And it was, the whole message was, don't wait. These wonderful turkeys will be snatched up. Because, again, a lot of it, it comes back to that whole tandoori turkey discussion earlier. There are a lot of us out there that might otherwise not really want to get a turkey for Thanksgiving. But you have to. You you have certain obligations to family and tradition. And you find your... So you, I imagine there's a market there for the turkey that is that you, you don't necessarily find that many people uh, that are that are going to have to maybe break a little out of their, their normal uh, eating routine and normal diet to get a bird. So they're going to be a little more selective. They're going to want to get that bird that's organic or free range or, or in some cases made entirely of tofu. Uh, that's yeah. true. Very true. Um, so Americans are not the only ones who are turkey crazy. According to World Poultry, Russia's turkey meat market will increase fivefold over the next 10 years from the current 100,000 tons to 500,000 tons per year. So the bird is making uh, gains in other parts of the world. Yeah. I mean, certainly we've talked before about uh, about the, the demand for meat. In, the, in parts of the world changes as the, the socioeconomic uh, set, settings there change. And all domesticated animals, it's worth remembering, these are animals that have essentially been hijacked from the natural world. Mm-hmm. And they have, they are, they're certainly still organisms. They're still deserving of our compassion and, and understanding, but they have largely become food sources. They have become as much a food source as they are an independent animal through human tinkering. Like it or not. Yeah, and let's talk about this domestication because um, when we talk about turkeys in the United States, the one type of turkey that is domesticated that dominates supermarkets is the broad-breasted white turkey. Now, we have an article about genetically modified turkeys, and in it, the author describes this turkey as the Anna Nicole Smith turkeys. Um, The reason for that is because they're bred for really large breasts. They have white feathers. Um, And this really has its roots in the 1930s, because that's when consumers were beginning to favor white breast meat over dark meat. And the industry began to respond by using something called selective breeding techniques. Now, selective breeding technique is different from genetically modified. Yeah. Selectively breeding, that's just about all right, I like the the cut of this one's jib, and I like the cut of that one's jib, and I love 
eating the jib. So I'm going to have those two mate, and I'm going to try and encourage even larger jibs. Larger chips. Yeah. Still, yeah. Okay. You're selecting for the traits you want. Well, and I think about it in terms of cows. So cows that produce the most milk might be selected to breed and pass that trait off to offspring so that you get cows that yeah. are really great at producing milk. Or as we've talked about dog breeds before, too. It's like yeah. I want a pug that looks just completely ridiculous, and I don't care how healthy or sane it is. So let's just breed for those ridiculous qualities over and over again until I basically have a um, a cushion that poops. I'm just going to let that linger there yeah, for a yeah. couple of seconds. I love pugs, though, but seriously, <laughs> take a look at these guys. <laughs> All right, so these monster turkey trucks that we have, um, they are actually genetically modified. And when we talk about genetic modification, we're talking about a high-tech way to change the DNA pattern in an organism. And it's used commonly in cotton, corn, soy, canola, um, and with... These techniques, you can take genes from any organism and cross them to create something new. So hypothetically, you could cross genes with uh, cotton and pigs. You could genetically modify a pig to have some expression of the genes of, say, something like cotton. Yeah. And uh, this brings me back to to the – I listed some of the animals and the the numbers of animals we've actually successfully – Domesticated. That number, those numbers don't include animals that we've been able to domesticate through genetic tinkering, mm-hmm. because certainly that opens the door for for even more domestication in uh, our creatures. So, what happens when you have these industry-bred birds, um, particularly when they're genetically modified? You have unusually large breasts, and so it's disproportionate with the rest of their body. And what that means is that they often have trouble standing. Uh, walking and even mating. So when that happens, when you have trouble mating, obviously they have to then have uh, or be artificially inseminated. Mm-hmm. They're essentially pugs at this point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they begin life hatched in incubators. They have their upper beaks and toenails clipped, and they spend their days and nights eating fortified corn in a barn full of hundreds of fellow turkeys. And that, my friends, is a, is a good reason to seek out that organic free-range bird. That it's true. It's real. Yeah. And, you know, we have this idea that these, these creatures are really dim-witted. And the reason for this is because this, this species of turkey that's been domesticated and then gen- genetically modified in some instances, they have a limited family tree. And so that's bred them to be somewhat dim-witted yeah. and disease-prone. They're like the monarchy in some European country where the, the, the pool <laughs> is just not that deep. And, and like a member yeah. of, the, of a European monarchy, they don't really have to get out there and fend for themselves or make their way in the world. They're domesticated. They don't need the sharpest senses either. So there's nothing to eat them when they start getting stupid. What is the, do you remember the rare uh, blood disorder that the current royal family, they have the, the genetic predisposition for? Like hemophilia, I believe. I think so, yeah. yeah. If we're wrong, someone let us know about yes. that. Uh, but there, you get the idea right there. Back to the disease-prone part of turkeys is obviously that leads to a widespread use of antibiotics, and we won't get into that here. But as we know, that has had all sorts of ramifications, not just with the meat itself, but on humans. Again, another reason to potentially choose a, an organic free-range bird over some sort of giant mammoth creature from the f- uh, freezer box at the local grocery. Now, it's also worth noting that I mentioned earlier the the idea of turkeys actually going out and robbing banks and causing mischief. Well, they haven't reached that point yet. But you certainly do encounter uh, some violent or intimidating clashes between humankind and turkey kind in the world. Act 2 of 2011's Poultry Slam episode of This American Life, 
uh, every year around Thanksgiving, they do a poultry slam episode. And it's all related to birds or turkeys uh, or you know, whatnot, somehow marginally connected anyway. It's a great lesson. It's a great lesson, and it's great. It's another great thing to listen to on uh, those road trips for the holidays. But uh, on last year's uh, episode, they talked about Tom the turkey, who, who was a menace in Martha's Vineyard. We're talking like a turkey that would come up to you while you're in your car and not let you out, essentially like the Cujo of turkey. <laughs> and and, and it's, it's a fabulous story. I, I won't ruin it for you, but go listen to it because it involves tragedy and conflict. It's, it's, it's wonderful. But certainly you do see turkeys as a menace in some areas. Wild turkeys have made a comeback, even like we said, urban areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, they've been spotted in the Atlanta area. And uh, it's interesting, as we mentioned before, the, the your normal wild turkey is going to avoid humans. It is a very, it is a cautious creature that does not want to get mess, messed up in human business because humans will probably kill them and eat them. And certainly, if they watch TV, they know that's the truth. So, what happens though is you'll have rogue domestic turkeys who have grown up wild, or you'll have hybrid turkeys where it's a domestic and a wild turkey that have mated and created this hybrid creature that has a lot of the physical attributes of, of both sides, but mm-hmm. also, more importantly, does not have that fear of humans. So it can be a menace. It can cujo somebody in their car somewhere and not let them out. Um, and then certainly in agricultural areas, wild turkeys do like to eat, and they can be somewhat of a, of a menace to uh, to farms. All right, so there you go. Yeah, so be um, if you encounter turkeys and they are not running from you, just be aware that they might run after you. Okay, you know, I always say, like, this should be a horror flick. This should be. Why isn't there a Thanksgiving marauding turkey? Night of the turkey. Night of the turkey. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. All right, so since we are abstracting turkeys, this concept of turkeys, let's talk about meat analogs. Because surely uh, meat analogs will be showing up at some tables this Thanksgiving. And I always order the meat analogs. <laughs> I know. Like, it's menu. What kind of meat analogs do you have? Bring me your meat analog selection. I know. It's the worst term, right? Because yeah. it's, it's so sterile. Um, but I wanted to mention that the global meat analog industry is beginning to gain ground in the meat market. So three in five adults now eat, eat meat-free food. So that doesn't mean that they're vegetarians, but that they eat regularly these meat-free foods. foods. And uh, this is part of a market that increased by 18% between 2005 and 2010. And so what's happening is that we're, we're very likely to see more and better quality meat substitutes in the next 10 years. And this is according to Florian Wild, who is the, who is leading Like Meat. And this is a European Union research project that is geared toward improving Fake flesh, as they call it. I feel like I have to say that. Fake flesh. He predicts two trends. That on the one hand, the development of premium products with more fibrous, elastic, and juicy textures with the potential to replace meat in good restaurants, that this will happen. The other trend he sees is that for lower quality substitutes to come online because they have the potential to replace 5 to 10% of today's meat market. And so he sees the potential for this uh, in developing world and uh, as well in the fast food arena in the form of burgers and nuggets, which yeah. is kind of a no-brainer, right? Um, and because it contains no brain, unlike a lot of the uh, Nicely there, done, right? yeah. yes, yes. Uh, and... To this, uh, to this end, Twitter co-founders Evan Williams and Biz Stone, they have invested in a new faux meat company called Beyond Meat. And this apparently is taking the, the faux meat world by storm. Um, in fact, Slate's Farhad Manjo reviewed the product in the company and he said, he said that he would rate Beyond Meat as being 90 to 95% as realistic as chicken. 
but in every other way it's superior. Superior. It requires far less energy to produce. It has no saturated fats, no antibiotics, and no animals are harmed in the process, as he says. So it's interesting to look at this, this industry, and try to extrapolate what it means in, by 2050 when we've talked about the, um, the dearth of land available to raise livestock and the 3.5 billion more people who will exist on Earth yeah. and how we will feed them. And some of the may, some of those people maybe need analogs by that point. We'll see. Does that mean we can eat them? Well, you could, I guess, but I, I would hope we would protect our, our meat analog brethren from from well, from, from, from uh, predation. That's a fight to it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> a fight to deal with in the future. Uh, another th- mention of the future, people are probably wondering, well, what about robot turkeys, right? <laughs> well, right. What's, what's the possibility of robot turkeys? Granted, they're not, they're not as good to eat, but truly there's been some work there. And true enough, spring turkey, uh, who hilariously enough on, on the MIT website, they had him listed as, they, they had dates, 1994 through 1996, yeah, like as that if he was, died yeah, in 1996. Right. Uh, but that's had, when he was or she was in service. Yeah. Right. The first walking robot at MIT's leg lab. Uh, it was part of the computer science and artificial intelligence lab. And it was essentially this biped, this robot biped that walked around in kind of turkey legs. So so there you go. Yeah. If you ever wondered if there was a, a turkey robot, yeah. A pioneer one at yeah. that. All right. Well, on that note, speaking of robot turkeys, let's call over our robot and see if he has any listener mail for us. I cannot believe you just called Arnold a turkey. Oh, well. All right, this one comes to us from Nando. Nando writes in and says, Hi, Robert and Julie. I've been a listener for a while now, and and finally I heard an episode in which I feel I can share an experience. I'd heard about how some people would stare into mirrors and lose focus on the body and meditate. A few weeks ago, I decided to try it. I used a full-length mirror that I have in my living room. At first, I saw the edge of my face sort of fade away into blackness. After a while, I lost sense of my position in the room, meaning I thought I was standing where my reflection was. This kept going on for a few minutes, shifting focus on my side of the room and the reflections until I saw something that scared the living daylights out of me. After about 10 minutes or so, I saw the mirror become translucent, like when you turn on the light uh, on the back end of a two-way mirror. There was a man standing there. I became really scared and lost focus. My eyes felt really tired, and I had a really strong headache immediately after. I tried to make sense of it. I figured my eyes hurt from focusing on the mirror, which caused the headache as well. I couldn't explain what I had seen. I don't recall the uh, man's features, if he had any. And even now, when I think about it, my eyes start to hurt. I couldn't find an explanation online that didn't have to do with the supernatural. I'm glad I listened to your podcast. Now I know that other people have seen strange things, and I am not losing my mind. Keep up the good work. So indeed, that's awesome. Because again, that that whole episode, Light as a Feather, Stiff as a Board, Mm -hmm. was about some sort of slumber party shenanigans, supernatural tricks like the use of Ouija boards, looking into a mirror and seeing Bloody Mary, uh, party levitation, that kind of thing. And the whole message is that even though an experience may seem kind of spooky and supernatural and magical, it's all in our perception of it. And there are a number of things at play there in the way that our mind works, in the way that... um, interpersonal relationships work in the, in the way that uh, that we remember what has happened. And all these things are in play. So certainly anytime we can help people understand that something isn't really all that magical but in actuality based in science, then I feel like we've done a good job. No, it was great feedback, too, to see what his experience was like, particularly after 10 minutes. Yeah. Because yeah. you could see the different stages that his, his uh, perception was going through. Yeah, and, and it sounded very creepy. I would have been freaked out 
that happened. That's exactly the reason why I was always too afraid to actually go in and ask about yeah, Bloody Mary. I was thinking about that when I read that. I was like, oh, that's what Robert was talking about, because that's what you don't want to see. Yeah, and certainly if you, you don't have an explanation for it, especially if you're, say, 12 in a pre-Internet age, mm-hmm. who do you go with it with, to with that? Who's going to have that answer ready for you? Well, even if you... Or, you know, in an internet age, right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. Like as he said, he went and looked them online, and there was just a bunch of bunk out there. So, anyway, thanks for writing in, Nando. We love uh, to hear cool stories about people's uh, personal interactions with uh, the phenomena that we talk about. So, uh, certainly, if anyone has any turkey-related stuff they would like to share with us about their own their own thoughts on Thanksgiving t- traditions, or about the bird itself, about our history with it culturally, or or, uh, or whatnot, then uh, write in and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Tumblr. We are Stuff to Blow Your Mind on both of those. And if you head on over to Twitter, you will find us under the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us a line at blowthemind at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 